0: Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody.
1: This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for January 17th through 23rd, 2022. This is covering Genesis 5 and Moses 6. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. The Scriptures. How you doing, scriptures? Oh, it's so nice to see him. And now, let's consult the Scripturmatic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 19 minutes, 54 seconds.
0: Easy to do, and what would it be daily?
1: 2 minutes, 50
0: seconds. Nice. Well, listen, we've got time codes here, but it just says chapter 6 of Moses and chapter 5 of Genesis. (laughs) So, you know what? Just buckle up and let's talk about them all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study.
1: Also, please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening, You might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel.
0: Yeah. So last time on Scripture Gems, the earth was created. Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. Now they and the other living things on the earth are mortal. Then we have Cain slaying Abel. And let's just recap Moses chapter 5 verses 56 through 58. It says, And God was angry with the wicked with all the sons of men whom he had made. For they would not hearken unto his voice, nor believe on his only begotten Son. And thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning.
1: And that brings us to Moses chapter 6.
0: As we explore this chapter, keep in mind what happened in the previous chapter. Look for what Adam and his
1: righteous descendants passed on to their children. And it starts right in verse 1. And Adam hearkened unto the voice of God and called upon his sons to repent. So, yes, wickedness was growing in the earth, but Adam hearkened to the Lord and preached repentance to his posterity. Going on in verse 2, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and he called his name Seth. And Adam glorified the name of God. For he said, God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And God revealed himself unto Seth, and he rebelled not, but offered an acceptable sacrifice like unto his brother Abel. And to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enos. And then began these men to call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord blessed them. So who is Seth? We actually learned a little bit about him last year when we studied Doctrine and Covenants section 107. Remember verses 42 to 43 talking about the line of priesthood authority? It says, From Adam to Seth, who was ordained by Adam at the age of 69 years, and was blessed by him three years previous to his, Adam's, death, and received the promise of God by his father, that his posterity should be the chosen of the Lord." and that they should be preserved unto the end of the earth, because he, Seth, was a perfect man, and his likeness was the express likeness of his father, insomuch that he seemed to be like unto his father in all things, and could be distinguished from him only by his age. So a chip off the old block, as it were. Nice. So let's go back to Moses chapter
0: 6 in verse 5. And a book of remembrance was kept in the which was recorded in the language of Adam. For it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration. And by them their children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. Now, one of the things that we learn in Moses, but not in Genesis, is that Adam had a pure language that was spoken and written. It also is exciting that there was a book kept. We don't have this book, and without a prophet, seer, and revelator, we wouldn't be able to read it anyway, but I love that it existed, and John and I would be very excited to read it.
1: We would do another series on that book alone. It would be (laughs) awesome. The Pearl of Great Price Institute manual has a couple of enlightening quotes from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Here's a thought on Adam's language. This is from his book, Mormon Doctrine. He says, quote, In the beginning, God gave Adam a language that was pure, perfect, and undefiled. This Adamic language, now unknown, was far superior to any tongue which is presently extant. For instance, the name of God the Father in this original language is man of holiness, signifying that he is a holy man and not a vague spiritual essence. The first language spoken by mortals was either the celestial tongue of the gods or such adaptation of it as was necessary to meet the limitations of mortality. And Adam and his posterity had power to speak, read, and write it. And here's another thought on that book of remembrance. This comes from his book, The Promised Messiah, The First Coming of Christ. He says, From the beginning, The Lord provided a language and gave men the power to read and write. The thing which they first wrote, and which of all their writings was of the most worth unto them, was a book of remembrance, a book in which they recorded what the Lord had revealed about himself, about his coming, and about the plan of salvation, which plan would have force and validity because of his atonement. This was the beginning of the Holy Scriptures. End quote.
0: And that is very exciting. The closest I think we could be connected to that would be the Jaredites. Now, we know that they brought a record with them and that they are about the next earliest people. They're going to be a people that comes from some short time after the flood. So what record do they have but some version, part of maybe the Book of Remembrance? That doesn't mean that we have any of it, but it's exciting to make a possible connection. So, let's move on to verse 7. Now, this same priesthood, which was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. Now, from the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, it gives us a quote from Joseph Smith, from the teachings of the presidents of the church, Joseph Smith. It says, the priesthood was first given to Adam. He obtained the the first presidency, and held the keys of it from generation to generation. He obtained it in the creation before the world was formed. The priesthood is an everlasting principle and existed with God from eternity and will to eternity without beginning of days or end of years. The keys have to be brought from heaven whenever the gospel is sent. When they are revealed from heaven... It is by Adam's authority. Very cool.
1: Now, in Moses 6, verses 8 through 25 gives us a patriarchal priesthood line. It starts with Adam, and we learn in verse 12 that Adam died 930 years from the fall. Then we get Seth in verses 10 and 11, who lived to be 912 in verse 16. We get Enos, and we are told that Enos prophesied also. And he lived to be 905 in verse 18. And in verse 15, we get this side note. And the children of men were numerous upon all the face of the land. And in those days, Satan had great dominion among men and raged in their hearts. And from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed. And a man's hand was against his own brother in administering death because of secret works seeking for power. Now, if you'll remember We talked about the secret works of them of old that the daughter of Jared encouraged her father to research. It could include these two. From Enos, we get Canaan in verse 17, who lived to be 910, verse 19. This is the first progenitor on record to have outlived his father. And in verse 17, it also tells us, And Enos and the residue of the people of God came out from the land, which was called Shulon, and dwelt in a land of promise, which he called after his own son, whom he had named Canaan. From Canaan, we get Mahalaleel in verse 19, and he lived to be 895. From Mahalalel, we get Jared, verse 20, who lived to be 962. This would be the first person we know of that would have outlived Adam and Enoch in verse 21. And we're going to focus on Enoch for a while. He would have been born 622 years after the fall. Now, what's interesting is that would mean that Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalel, and Jared would all still be alive. An interesting side note with Jared in verse 21, Jared taught Enoch in all the ways of God. And it also mentions in verse 25... Methuselah, who is the son of Enoch, will talk more about him in future lessons. Have you ever wondered why people before the flood lived so long? We have the answer. No one knows. But if you are interested in an insightful look at possible theories, we will link to an article from the enzyme recommended in the seminary manual in the description.
0: Something else that you might be interested in, we'll probably talk about this more than once When John's pronouncing names like Mahalaleel, that's something else that makes people cringe in reading the Old Testament is that they don't know how to pronounce the names. First of all, every page on our digital resources has a link where you can listen to the scripture. So feel free to just listen and see how they pronounce it. But as a rule, the Hebrew alphabet doesn't have vowels. It's just consonants. So when we add the vowels, you should just pronounce them. So normally when we put two vowels together, we would come up with an independent sound joining those two vowels. But for Hebrew, and again, scholars pronounce these names differently, but you will be in a pretty safe place if you just go ahead and pronounce them, like Mahalalil. So just kind of play with these words. Don't be scared of them. Have fun with them. We will as we go along.
1: Yeah, Jay brings up a really good point. One of the problems with these ancient Hebrew names is that scholars don't even agree on how to pronounce them. So even if someone calls you out in Sunday school of saying, well, no, it's not pronounced that way, you're welcome to return with, are you sure?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you could also say, oh yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Oh yeah? Hey, now one other thing. Well, we just talked about all those people. So there's this helpful chart called Old Testament Times at a Glance. We talked about it last episode. We'll link it again here. If you look at that, you can see the kind of estimates of ages and how they stack up. It's a helpful visual to see everybody's ages and where they fall in the chronology. But let's get back to chapter 6 and let's take a look at verse 23, referring to all the men we just talked about here. He says, And they were preachers of righteousness, and spake, and prophesied, and called upon all men everywhere to repent, and faith was taught unto the children of men. So let's talk about Enoch. From the Old Testament we get the following information about Enoch. This is Genesis chapter 5. In verse 18, and Jared lived an hundred and sixty and two years, and he begat Enoch. And then in verse twenty-one, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it? So that's all we get from Genesis. The Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews and Jude gives us a little more information about Enoch in the New Testament, and that's about it. But do you remember in Doctrine and Covenants 107, verse 57, where it mentions the book of Enoch? In Moses chapter 6, starting in verse 25, through chapter 8, verse 3, is an excerpt from that book.
1: And that's so exciting. From the Old Testament Institute Manual, we get this introduction about Enoch from Ellis T. Rasmussen in his book, Introduction to the Old Testament. He says, quote, Four generations and some 500 years later, according to Adam's Book of Remembrance, Enoch of Seth's line was called to become a great prophet missionary reformer. His ministry was needed, for the followers of the line and cult of Cain had become numerous, and violence was rampant already in the fifth generation after Cain. Unto those who had become sensual and devilish, Enoch preached repentance, the sons of God, distinguished from the sons of men, were obliged to segregate themselves in a new home called Canaan after their forefather, the son of Enos. Now don't confuse this Canaan with the wicked people of Canaan, that's Canaan with two A's, that we'll talk about in the following chapter. The teachings of Enoch cover some seven major categories and embrace some information found nowhere else in Scripture. He dealt with one, The fall of man and its results. 2. The nature of salvation and the means of achieving it. 3. Sin, as seen in the evils of his times, in contrast to the righteousness of the godly who were his followers. 4. The cause, purpose, and effects of the anticipated flood of Noah. 5. The scope of Satan's triumph and the resultant sorrows of God. 6 the first advent of the Messiah, seven, the second advent of the Messiah and his peaceful millennial reign. The details of his gospel concepts are worth careful study and attention. Mention of this great man is also found in the New Testament and in the Doctrine and Covenants, End quote. So what a blessing
0: to have this inspired portion missing from the current Genesis account. I hope we appreciate it as we read and study it. So, let's jump into the chapter again, chapter 6, in verse 26, and look for phrases that describe Enoch's people. And it came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land among the people, and as he journeyed, the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, Enoch, my son, prophesy unto this people, and say unto them, Repent, for thus saith the Lord." I am angry with this people, and my fierce anger is kindled against them, for their hearts have waxed hard, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes cannot see afar off. So right away we're beginning to see some interesting imagery here. We have their hearts having waxed hard, and their ears dull of hearing. What is that like to have a hard heart? What is that like to be dull of hearing? Or even that our eyes cannot see afar off. That notion that we're not seeing things with an eternal perspective. That's for sure. We're worried about the here and now. So let's go on to verse 28. And for these many generations, ever since the day that I created them, have they gone astray and have denied me, and have sought their own counsels in the dark. And in their own abominations have they devised murder, and have not kept the commandments which I gave unto their father Adam. Wherefore, they have forsworn themselves, and by their oaths they have brought upon themselves death, and a hell I have prepared for them, if they repent not. And this is a decree which I have sent forth in the beginning of the world, from my own mouth, from the foundation thereof, and by the mouths of my servants, thy fathers, have I decreed it, even as it shall be sent forth in the world unto the ends thereof.
1: From the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, they give us a little more insight on that notion of a hell I have prepared for them. It says, because of the wickedness of the people in the days of Enoch, the Lord called upon Enoch to preach repentance. The Lord told Enoch, a hell I have prepared for them if they repent not. This hell refers to the part of the spirit world known as the spirit prison where the wicked suffer torment because of their unrepented sins. So what was Enoch's reaction to this call? In verse 31, And when Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and spake before the Lord, saying, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight, and am but a lad? And all the people hate me, for I am slow of speech. Wherefore am I thy servant? Now, first off, I love that a lad is someone who is 65 years old.
0: Well, in that day, he might be a teenager. It might be.
1: And second, I see this as a very common pattern throughout the history of the world, wherein God calls his servants. And we'll get another great example of this when we study more about the prophet Moses later this year and throughout the Old Testament, including people like Gideon. Well, and
0: Isaiah. Right. I mean, how great is he, and yet still has that feeling of not being worthy for the call that's being given. From the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, we get this summary from President James E. Faust in the October 1980 General Conference. He says, Most of us who are called to leadership in the church feel that we are inadequate because of inexperience, lack of ability, or meager learning and education. Think for a minute about Enoch's response here. We can look at people who have been called to great things, and sure, we can feel overwhelmed. But Enoch has been called to this. He says, you've got the wrong guy because I'm a lad. The people hate me. I am slow of speech. I'm not the guy. I wonder if Enoch has a little bit of that same problem that the Lord accused the others of having in verse 27 where he mentions that their eyes cannot see afar off. Maybe Enix got a little bit of this, where he's having a hard time seeing the Lord's purposes with an eternal perspective. It's maybe hardest to do it when looking at
1: ourselves. But isn't this the Lord's pattern? Think about your current leaders, your Relief Society president, your elders president, your bishop, your stake president. Did these men and women go off to some sort of training academy for several years in order to be called to their position? No. The Lord simply called them. And as President Thomas S. Monson taught us, whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. And why does the Lord do that? Wouldn't it make more sense to call someone with training and experience, especially to higher levels of leadership? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, as Isaiah tells us. Could it be that the Lord calls someone because they are inexperienced and untrained? Could it be that the Lord will further his work by the hand of the weak and simple, as we learned last year in Doctrine and Covenants section 1? To me, this pattern has at least one purpose. As the work moves forward and miracles occur— This pattern is a powerful testimony to the power of God, to the individual who was called, as well as to the people that person was sent to minister to. The individual knows that they could not accomplish the work before them on their own and must rely upon God. The people ministered to may know the individual and know of themselves that this person can't accomplish what is being accomplished before their eyes. Is that not a testimony of the power of God? something to think about.
0: John, that's such an excellent point because we're gonna see that play out where there's no way Enoch could do what he does. But when we couple our efforts, especially in God's work with Jesus Christ and have his power, his grace, that changes the equation. So let's keep going in verse 32 and let's look at the promises the Lord gives. Enoch, especially considering his insecurities. In verse 32, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Go forth and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled. And I will give thee utterance for all flesh is in my hands, and I will do as seemeth me good. Say unto this people, Choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. Behold, my spirit is upon you, wherefore all thy words will I justify, and the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. What a beautiful invitation for the Lord to say, if you're going to do my work, then we're going to do it together. Walk with me. It's interesting to me that in verse 33, it's very similar to what we're going to learn from Joshua later in his declaration, Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Is it possible that Joshua had access to Enoch's writing, that he was quoting what he had
1: read from Enoch? Could be. So back to the chapter, verse 35, Enoch gains a vision. And the Lord spake unto Enoch, and said unto him, Anoint thine eyes with clay, and wash them, and thou shalt see. And he did so. And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, A seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people.
0: Now that is
1: interesting.
0: Remember how we said before, his insecurities may be a reflection of him not being able to see afar off, just like the Lord criticized the people. Notice that the Lord had Enoch anoint his eyes with clay, or earth, and then wash them to teach him about his sacred role as a seer. Why? It appears he was able to see with spiritual eyes rather than his natural eyes, the natural represented by the clay now washed away. So what's the lesson for us? Can we benefit from learning to see things with spiritual eyes, letting the Lord wash away the earthly things so that we can understand spiritual things and learn to see afar off? By strict obedience and with the Lord's help, we can see with spiritual eyes.
1: Although, unless the Lord commands it, I don't necessarily recommend anointing your eyes with clay.
0: No, there's other ways to do it.
1: Yes. From the Pearl of Great Price Student Institute Manual, we get this quote from Elder John A. Witzow from the book Evidences and Reconciliations. He says, A seer is one who sees with spiritual eyes. He perceives the meaning of that which seems obscure to others. Therefore, he is an interpreter and clarifier of eternal truth. He foresees the future from the past and the present. This he does by the power of the Lord operating through him directly or indirectly with the aid of divine instruments such as the Urim and Thummim. Quote. So Enoch is now a seer. So,
0: going on in verse 37, what were the people's reactions to this new seer? In verse 37, And it came to pass that Enoch went forth in the land among the people, standing upon the hills and the high places, and cried with a loud voice, testifying against their works. And all men were offended because of him. And they came forth to hear him upon the high places, saying unto the tent keepers, Tarry ye here and keep the tents, while we go yonder to behold the seer, for he prophesieth. And there is a strange thing in the land a wild man hath come among us. And it came to pass that when they heard him, no man laid hands on him, for fear came on all them that heard him, for he walked with God. So they were offended because of him, and most people wanted to go hear him because they thought he was a crazy wild man. And yet, don't you get the impression there was something special about what was being said, even if people fought against it?
1: So let's hear about what Enoch has to say. In verse 40, And there came a man unto him whose name was Mahijah, and he said unto him, Tell us plainly who thou art, and from whence thou comest. And he said unto them, I came out from the land of Canaan, the land of my fathers, a land of righteousness unto this day. Now, quick aside, remember we talked about Enos, who was Enoch's great-great-grandfather. Enos and his people left and obtained a land of promise, That was called Canaan. That's what he's talking about. Back to the verse. And my father taught me in all the ways of God. And remember, we talked about that too. His father was Jared. Verse 42. And it came to pass, as I journeyed from the land of Canaan by the sea east, I beheld a vision. And lo, the heavens I saw. And the Lord spake with me and gave me commandment. Wherefore, for this cause to keep the commandment, I speak forth these words. And Enoch continued his speech, saying, The Lord which spake with me, the same is the God of heaven, and he is my God and your God, and ye are my brethren. And why counsel ye yourselves and deny the God of heaven? The heavens he made, the earth is his footstool, and the foundation thereof is his. Behold, he laid it, and host of men hath he brought in upon the face thereof. You
0: know, something that impresses me about his approach here is that he's uniting them or attempting to unite them, recognizing that, look, we're all brethren. We're all sons of God, daughters of God. We're all children of God. There's no sense of him wanting to divide themselves. You're my brethren, he says. We are united by the fact that we are children of God.
1: And I love the line in verse 43, and why counsel ye yourselves and deny the God of heaven? So in other words, why do you argue amongst yourselves about perhaps your origin or your purpose or who you are and deny your actual father, the God of heaven? Is that maybe even something that's going on today?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, it's about counseling amongst themselves, but it's also taking counsel from themselves. Right. That notion that that's where they're trying to get wisdom is from themselves. Why not access the God of heaven?
1: the person who laid the foundation of the earth thereof. Yeah, the earth is just his footstool.
0: Let's talk to him, maybe. So going on to verse 45. So from here now, Enoch starts from the beginning with Adam. Remember that Adam is still alive at this point. So verse 45, And death hath come upon our fathers. Nevertheless, we know them and cannot deny. And even the first of all we know, even Adam, For a book of remembrance we have written among us, according to the pattern given by the finger of God, and it is given
1: in our own language. So first of all, in verse 45, I love the fact that he says, nevertheless, we know them and cannot deny, and even the first of all we know, even Adam. It's almost like he's saying, you know, the guy who lives on First Street, we know that guy.
0: (laughs) But he's also a primary witness. Right. He's been in the presence of God. And he's still there among them.
1: And then for a book of remembrance, I love the fact that in verse 46, it says, We have written among us according to the pattern given by the finger of God. Wouldn't that imply that the Lord taught writing to Adam by a personal demonstration? That is awesome. Yeah, it seems that way. Verse 47, as Enoch spake forth the words of God, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence the lord was clearly with enoch notice that the people trembled and could not stand in his presence but they continued to listen so compelling were the words of enoch
0: so look at the difference between what enoch thought he was capable of and what he is doing with the lord remember how the excuses i don't know if they were excuses but how he felt about himself previous to this calling and now look at someone who considers himself slow of speech, people cannot stop listening to what he has to say.
1: So, in verses 48 to 52, Enoch summarizes the fall and the formation of the two moral choices, Satan or God.
0: Yeah, in verse 49, he mentions men have become carnal, sensual, and devilish, and are shut out from the presence of God. So, what does that have to do? What does that fallen condition do to our relationship with God? Why is becoming carnal, sensual, and devilish shut us out from the presence of God? Remember that if we're not choosing God, then we're choosing something else. And anything else that prioritizes itself over God, including our bodily desires, that becomes an idol and it diminishes our relationship with God. He has to come first over any of the other influences that we might feel. So let's take a look at verse 53. And our father Adam spake unto the Lord and said, Why is it that men must repent and be baptized in water? And the Lord said unto Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the garden of Eden. Hence came the saying abroad among the people, that the Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children
1: for they are whole from the foundation of the world. That concept of original guilt, we have a comment from the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual from Elder Neil A. Maxwell in his book Meek and Lowly. He says, quote, We are not haunted with an overhanging sense of original sin, about which we can do nothing. By revelation, we know that the Lord told Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden, Thus we are accountable for our own sins and not for Adam's transgression, End quote. Remember when we studied the Articles of Faith a few lessons ago? Right. That's why that's there.
0: Well, so let's go on to verse 55. And the Lord spake unto Adam, saying, Inasmuch as thy children are conceived in sin, even so when they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts, and they taste the bitter, that they may know to prize the good. Now, that phrase, conceived in sin, in verse 55, might seem a bit alarming, but Elder Bruce R. McConkie, in his book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith, clarifies that. He says, the phrase conceived
1: in sin means born into a world of sin. All right, so let's take a look back at the chapter, verse 56. And it is given unto them to know good from evil, wherefore they are agents unto themselves, And I have given unto you another law and commandment. Wherefore, teach it unto your children, that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ a righteous judge who shall come in the meridian of time. Therefore I give unto you a commandment to teach these things freely unto your children, saying that by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death. And inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the spirit which I have made, and so become of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water, and of the Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin, and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world, and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory.
0: So there is some stark imagery
1: there, the idea of the water,
0: and the Spirit, and the blood. Elder Bruce R. McConkie explores those ideas a little bit more in his book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith. This is referenced in the Pearl of Great Price Institute Manual. He says, quote, Two births are essential to salvation. Man cannot be saved without birth into mortality, nor can he return to his heavenly home without a birth into the realm of the spirit. The elements present in a mortal birth and in a spiritual birth are the same. They are water blood, and spirit. Thus, every mortal birth is a heaven-given reminder to prepare for the second birth. In every mortal birth, the child is immersed in water in the mother's womb. At the appointed time, the spirit enters the body and blood always flows in the veins of the new person. Otherwise, without each of these, there is no life, no birth, no mortality. In every birth into the kingdom of heaven the newborn babe in Christ, is immersed in water. He receives the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, and the blood of Christ cleanses him from all sin. Otherwise, without each of these, there is no spirit birth, no newness of life, no hope of eternal life. Quote. There's a great insight about how we begin this journey by Elder David A. Bednar from the General Conference in April 2007. He says, We are instructed to come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny ourselves of all ungodliness, to become new creatures in Christ, to put off the natural man and to experience a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Please note that the conversion described in these verses is mighty not minor, a spiritual rebirth and fundamental change of what we feel and desire, what we think and do and what we are. Indeed, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ entails a fundamental and permanent change in our very nature made possible through our reliance upon the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we choose to follow the master, we choose to be
1: changed, to be spiritually reborn. Nice. Well, back to the chapter, verse 60. For by the water ye keep the commandment, by the spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified. From the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, we get this additional insight from the Bible Dictionary, their entry on baptism. Baptism is not optional if one wishes the fullness of salvation. Jesus said a person must be born of water and of the Spirit. When he sent the twelve apostles forth to teach the gospel, he told them that whosoever believed and was baptized would be saved, and whosoever did not believe would be damned. Baptism in water has several purposes. It is for the remission of sins, for membership in the church, and for entrance into the celestial kingdom. It is also the doorway to personal sanctification when followed by the reception of the Holy Ghost. Excellent resource.
0: Now referring back to verse 60, by the spirit ye are justified and by the blood ye are sanctified seems to be in verse 61 referring to that spirit. In verse 61 it says, Therefore it is given to abide in you the record of heaven, the comforter, The peaceable things of immortal glory, the truth of all things, that which quickeneth all things, which maketh alive all things, that which knoweth all things and hath all power, according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. And now, behold, I say unto you, this is the plan of salvation unto all men through the blood of mine only begotten, who shall come in the meridian of time and behold all things have their likeness and all things are created and made to bear record of me both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual things which are in the heavens above and things which are on the earth and things which are in the earth and things which are under the earth both above and beneath all things bear record
1: of me such powerful teaching and i have to admit It hadn't stuck out to me before, but in verse 61, referring to the Holy Ghost as the record of heaven. Yeah. That is awesome. I love that.
0: Especially in light of what we've been talking about with them keeping a record and so forth. I don't ever remember that standing out to me before either. Very cool.
1: Other descriptions we're familiar with, certainly the truth of all things. Remember Moroni 10 verse 5, and by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truth of all things. Right. So there you go. But that notion of something that has all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment is given to abide in you. That's amazing.
0: That is amazing. Let's go on to verse 64 and look at Adam's baptism. And it came to pass that when the Lord had spoken with Adam, our father, that Adam cried unto the Lord, and he was caught away by the Spirit of the Lord, and was carried down into the water... And was laid under the water, and was brought forth out of the water. And thus he was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And thus he was born of the Spirit, and became quickened in the inner man. And he heard a voice out of heaven, saying, Thou art baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. This is the record of the Father and the Son, from henceforth and forever. And thou art after the order of him who was without beginning of days or end of years, from all eternity to all eternity. Behold, thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons.
1: Amen. Now we'll get more clarification on this later when we study Moses 8, but it would seem that followers of God were referred to as the sons of God. It was the ancient way of distinguishing oneself as being a member of the church, for example.
0: Yeah, think about the difference in saying something today like, I'm a Mormon versus, I'm a disciple of Christ. There is definitely more power and more distinguishing characteristic in that second title,
1: disciple of Christ. Absolutely. Now, notice that in verse 67, it tells us that Adam was ordained to the priesthood, specifically what would be later called the Melchizedek Priesthood. It wasn't called the Melchizedek Priesthood then because it was 2,000 years before Melchizedek was born. At least. So there you have it. What an exciting lesson that we've had to talk about Enoch and to talk about his prophesying. We'll talk a lot more about Enoch in our next lesson, so you should look forward to that. And I will. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
0: But we're really big fans.